welcome to Bayer Cropcast with your technical field representatives from right around Australia. In this Cropcast, we'll give you a quick wrap-up of the season at hand and things to look out for, including events coming up around you and everything related to agronomy and growing healthy crops. We are passionate about the future of agriculture and crop protection, and we look forward to having you join us on Bayer Cropcast. Welcome to Bayer Cropcast. It's episode 12, and it's really great to have Matt Willis, my colleague here in Western Australia, on the line. How are you today, Matt? Yeah, good things, Whitey. Glad to be back in the hot seat after I see that you had a, a crop cast with the horticulture guys in the previous episode. And um, yeah, good to focus back on Broadacre, which is uh, definitely my specialty anyway. Yeah, no, for sure, mate. You and I both in the market development area. So myself, Craig White, and you, Matt Willis, of course, up in the north part of uh, the cropping area of Western Australia. But yeah, we recently did that uh, Bayer Hawkcast, the first episode, and that's actually, yeah, getting some really popular um, activity on that at the moment. So that just went out last week. If anyone's interested in horticultural crops, have a look out for that one. But let's mm. turn back to Broadacre in general, Matt. Uh, yeah, obviously we're well underway now with the sowing programs. That means we've been out and about. I know you especially up in the north have been getting a lot of trial work in. I've still got uh, a few to do down south at the moment and waiting for some rain. But yeah, how's your program been going up there? And for listeners, you know what's been uh, going in the ground so far? Mm, yeah, well, as of this recording, we're right in the middle, smack bang in the middle of May. Um, most guys are a fair way through their program. They've got all their pulses and canola in for the most part. And um, probably, probably, I'd say roughly about half of the cereal program in the north of WA is in now. Right. Uh, and uh, going along those lines, I'm probably in a similar boat with my trial program. So I've got uh, this year, I've got a trial hub. Uh, up in Geraldton, just east of Geraldton, and I've got another one pretty much just outside of York uh, as well. So I've got those two trial hubs, and most of those trials in those hubs are now in. I've got one more to do next week at the York one, but the, the Geraldton one, uh, that's all uh, in the ground, and I've heard that one of them is up and away as well, got sown into a bit of moisture, which was good. Uh, also got a few more trials around the place. Uh, I've got one at Marchagee, that's already in. Out at Wongan Hills, that's in. I've got one out at Latham with the Levy Group, that should be going in next next week, I believe. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I think there's only one more whaling of mine that needs to go in of the small plot ones, at least. I've got a few other little grower grower demos around the place, exploring uh, tag team inoculant, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, um, and uh, aviator, which will obviously be later on in the year uh, with fungicides. Um, but yeah, ticking along. They've uh, been particularly busy over the last couple of weeks. Had had the dreaded phone call um, a few days back where uh, I've got a, a, a trial I was planning to put in pre-emergent. It's, it's requiring me to get there before the grower goes through with his bar because it's grower sown. And generally, you'll be having a conversation with that grower for two months leading up to it. So just give me plenty of warning. <laughs> If uh, let me know how you're going, and then I can make sure I'm there within 24 hours of you going through with the bar. Yep, yep, cool, cool. Yep, and got the phone call on Monday saying, "Oh, I just had a change of plans. This was based on the the barley price uh, bottoming out with the, uh, the whole thing around uh, <laughs> tariffs." Um, and this, I'm I'm changing it to wheat, so we're going to be putting it in today. Yep. <laughs> so this is so I got that call, that phone call first thing in the morning, um, and the. Hadn't even prepared, uh, started preparing for that trial, getting things ready. So it was a mad scramble to, to print out all my protocols, to head into my storage uh, locker, to get all my, my chemicals and my spray gear and drive three hours up to where I needed to get to and get the grower 
to his credit, held off just a little bit so I could get there in time and yeah, was helped out by the by uh, the local nutrient agronomist. He came out and helped me and uh, Ty Grono, our sales rep from Geraldton, came down and yeah, we, we got it in. But, geez, it was a bit of a panic and it, it seems to happen once a year, but yep. I suppose it's part of the job. Yeah, it, it, these growers are flat out. We need to uh, be flexible for them and in this case, yeah, had to do it and, and it's all done. Yeah, no, that uh, that does happen occasionally, and we really appreciate the you know the collaboration and the um, people allowing us to do this work on their farms. We really appreciate that. Obviously, they get a very good first hand look at it as well. But I had a similar one last week. It wasn't uh, didn't actually come to as much as, as yours did, but I had uh, a great collaborator or a great uh, farmer that I do a lot of work with, and he rang me up and he just had a joke with me and said similar on the lines. Oh, I'm going to be seeding that paddock in a couple of hours. Can you put that trial there before I go through it? And I I'm like, what? And uh, he said, no, I'm just joking. So he knows, you know, how this stuff can work sometimes. But yeah, the trials um, we are undertaking at the moment have got the pre-emergent sort of activity in them. And then there'll be some post-emergent work that we're doing um, on some new concepts and whatnot alongside the standards. But yeah, really good. And um, I think, you know, the industry is going to learn a lot about that uh, during the year. And we thank our collaborators for that. And yeah, we're as flexible and do as best we can to get around all over this great state of Western Australia and get them in, Matt. Mm, certainly, it's always the it's almost like rolling the dice for these pre-emergent trials, and obviously a lot of these are herbicide trials. So we're looking for weeds, and when you're doing a post-emergent trial, it's generally quite easy. You drive around the paddock, you find the weeds, you put the trial in, you spray it out. Whereas for the pre-emergent, yep. yeah. Yeah, generally, for the most part, you're playing a bit of a guessing game based off what you've seen in the last couple of years, uh, what the growers seen, what their advisors seen, and yeah. So there's, there's a few trials I've got in where I'm fairly confident there'll be weeds, but you, you're never sure until uh, we get that first big rain and uh, yep. yeah, the weeds pop out of the ground. <laughs> that's right. And, yeah, that's what we're waiting for in the south. I mean, there was rain, but uh, we certainly need a lot more to get things up and going. But yeah, on my side in the south, it's been great. Some great contract work going in. So from from Esperance uh, around through. Through, you know the, the South Stirlings in that area we'll be putting some uh, trial work there um, in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, up into Katanning around Narragin out in Corrigan so yeah good spread around the place and uh, be interesting later on to uh, fill people in on those a lot more either visually or through the podcast and yeah I suppose Matt just um, talking about pre-emergence you know at the moment whole range of conditions as there are just about every year but I guess we just to touch a little bit on you know what to expect now the pre-emergence so you might put Sakura down uh, Sakura Treflan um, you know whatever other brew you're using obviously the pre-emergence they are fundamentally there to you know take care of germinating weeds but you know depending on the soil conditions the rainfall um, we can get ver- variances in you know the, the activity that comes from those did you would you like to just touch on that a little bit for listeners you know what to expect perhaps if it's going to remain dry or it's really wet and that sort of stuff you know do you want to touch on that for us mm-hmm. so it really comes down to or different modes of action and how the, the, the herbicide behaves in the soil. Um, we need to think about which which herbicides need need moisture, need rain to get them to soil solution to be able to taken up be taken up into the weeds, uh, and which ones don't require that. And so obviously the big ones that we know are quite volatile that don't require moisture to activate is your trifluralin and your trilate. So they can sit in the soil, they go become volatile into a gaseous state and get taken up into the plant. Uh, whereas other herbicides such as Sakura, Prosulfacarb, uh, uh, and if 
few others, uh, need to be put into source solution to be taken up by the plant, either through the root system or the shoot system. Um, so they're the ones that require moisture. And, and that's why a lot of this, we, we have big discussions around using multiple modes of action, using multiple products in your brews for pre-emergent activity. So it's not just for um, uh, herbicide resistance management, which is a very important aspect to it, but also in terms of uh, mitigating your risks in terms of you can pair a product which is volatile, like a trifluralin, with a product which is uh, needs to be in soil solution, such as uh, Sakura, together, uh, you're covering both bases. If you get that dry, wet, dry start, you've got germinating weeds, but the Sakura is not in soil solution yet, then your, tri- tri- your tri- will be able to keep, uh, hold off the weeds until you do get that first round of the season, which can then kick your Sakura into gear and then give you that little, real high level of control for it with that big residual period, which you don't get from a, a trifluralin. So, yeah, the big... Oh, one thing if you really worry about with Sakura is putting it out standalone in a condition where it's not getting into soil solution because it hasn't rained after application whilst weeds are germinating due to an earlier rainfall event. That's always been the, the big red flag, which we always uh, encourage people to mix that tri- uh, Sakura with a, a trilator or a trifluralin in that situation. Yeah, really all good round weed packages, you say, complementary activity because of the way they, they work and obviously advisors um, and Bayer, we can give more information about that if people want to delve into that a little bit more and of course you know there's the scenarios where we just have completely dry sowing you know Sakura is very nice in that condition um, because it will wait there to be charged up with with rainfall as you said Um, you know sowing dry turning wet um, within a few days and and a week of sowing is another great sort of situation probably the one that you know can be a little bit tricky Matt is if we go into moisture and it dries out that's often the one where the weeds can start to escape and uh, and move along so people need to be really aware of that situation and um, get advice on that don't give up on the herbicides either by the way because Mm. they do need time to activate and get into the root system and through the plant so Dry, dry is good. Um, obviously, we want it to wet up. Um, you know, dry, uh, wetting up is is really good. And, you know, if it's wet and drying out is probably the one to really watch and be a bit more wary of. Mm, certainly. So, obviously, Matt, with a lot of paddocks going in being sown at the moment, all sorts of crops and a lot have already been done, but there's been, you know, obviously, a lot of spraying that has to happen at that time. Knockdowns, pre-emergences we just talked about. Um, you know, tank mixing orders, something we're hearing a few people around asking about this year in particular, and um, a few little issues come up every single season. But um, we've made available on our Bayer homepage um, under the tools tab. So if you go to crop.bayer.com.au and just click on tools, um, there's a nice little tank mixing guide there that can really help you. Um, you know, avoid any issues. And often what we find too is perhaps the speed of mixing can can create some issues with a, a whole range of uh, or some of the products and, and whatnot and, you know, slowing down a little bit. No one likes to be told to slow down mm. doing anything because it is a very, very busy time. So I can tell you though, um, that little bit of time there getting things properly mixed and make sure they're right through, you know, the water body um, will save a heck of a lot of time you know, cleaning a boom spray out and filters and whatnot. So we mm. wanted to just go through that tank mixing um, in a little bit more of an order. And I might just start by, you know, just say to you, everyone listening, you know, think of your water, that's your carrier, that's the most obvious thing. And, you know, I'd like to think of it as a, um, a set of, you know, pigeonholes or post office boxes down at your local post office. Um, mm. You know, there's only a certain amount of places where you can put all the, the components and, you know, in the case of, 
the analogy I'm painting, I suppose, if you've got a massive amount of uh, mail there and parcels and what whatnot, hopefully not too many bills, Matt, but you know, a lot of uh, <laughs> lot of envelopes to stuff into a very few amount of boxes. Um, and in this case, you know, a small amount of water, then you're going to run into difficulties. Stuff just won't fit in. So you've got to remember water um, only has a certain number of places for chemicals to go in and they all behave a little bit differently. So we might just sort of step through the order, Matt, of how we do mm. it. So would you put uh, would you put the easiest thing to dissolve into water into the tank first or would you do that sort of later on in the process? Which way would you do it, Matt? Well, the things you need to get in suspension, you, you need to start with them Absolutely. First. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so things like if you need to condition the water, you know, that might be uh, some LI700 or ammonium sulfate needing to go in, you've got to make sure they go in and condition your water nice and early. And then, of course, products that are quite dry or suspended concentrates, so SCs, you know, an example of the dry products is like Sakura, for example. Mm, um, yeah, you know, Prismide. Yeah, propizamide, exactly. And, of course, also the suspension concentrates are often referred to as SCs. You know, there's now Sakura Flow, um, a new one we launched this year. There's Syncor, mm. there's uh, propizamide, there's a version of that. So those sort of things, they need they need a bit more mixing um, and they need plenty of water to go into so that they do disperse throughout. Um, so, yeah, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, so then after your uh, suspension concentrates, you go towards your ECs, your emulsifiable concentrates. Uh, they're, they're fairly common, like your trifluralins, uh, you know, clopyrifosis, or even insecticides fit into that, uh, your metallic laws, um, uh, most of your group G spikes, like your carfentrazone, uh, they all fit into there. Um, they're those ones that get those nice, that big bloom when you when you put them into the water. They they. Um, so yeah, certainly put them in after your um, uh, SCs because if you do put them in first before your SCs, that water gets saturated, your letterboxes get full, and then you try and uh, suspend those SCs or your uh, or your granules into the water, and it's it's already full. The letterbox is full by that point. So you always yep. put the ECs in uh, after those SCs and, and granules, That's right. um, and then after that. You've had the um, like a lot of water, so we sort of recommend around you know two thirds to three quarters of your tank should have water in it. Um, mm. Even before you start the process, there's no point having just a few you know 500 liters or whatever in a in a large tank and trying to get those dry products and SCs as you'd said into there. So once the ECs have gone in, the next ones are the ones that are a little bit easier to start to to mix amongst the water or get into the post boxes as we paint that analogy. So they're the the mm. soluble concentrates and examples of those are things like your um, gramoxone, for example, if you're doing that, or your mm. roundups and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and then you would sort of add some more water at that stage. And then, yeah, I suppose, Matt, uh, right at the end, what's the last thing we'd put in? Oh, the adjuvants, uh, things like your, your oils, actually, like your hastens, your enhancers, uh, your wetters uh, are going at the end. Absolutely, and uh, important mm. that step because if you put them in too early, obviously they could uh, create foaming issues and whatnot. So, mm. just in um, sort of just in summary, I suppose looking back to that, so start with a good amount of water. Remember, you need plenty of post boxes, plenty of room for things to go in. You would condition that water that's gone in with your um, ammonium sulfate, for example. Move on to your dry products, which need obviously water to become suspended. And then it's your suspension concentrates. They need to go in at that stage before anything like trifluralin, trilate, um, insecticides, as you said, go in, which are the ECs, very common group. 
So make sure the dry air and the suspension concentrates go in before that stage and then you move on to more of those very soluble type products, more of the roundups mm. and spray seed and things like this can go in a bit later on and then finish yep. off with the icing on the cake, I suppose, to make it all work, the uh, the adjuvants and, uh, and have that water um, topped up and then make sure, you know, you give it, it's not about, you know, we often hear people saying I've got really good agitation and that is so critical but it is also time turning that tank over or through the whole system mm. to ensure things are blended. It's not about about blasting it um, right through, you know, with huge agitation. It's about getting it cycling over through through so that things are nice and mixed mm. and then ready to spray out and shouldn't give you any problems then, Matt. Yeah, and, and, and time is money at the end of the day. We know that. That's why guys are trying to spray as much as they can as quickly as they can this time of year, uh, particularly if there's a rainfall event coming and, and, the, and, the, and the, yep. the bar's catching up to the boom really quickly. But you know, I think there's a lot of money in these spray tanks these days. And, um, uh, yeah, if something goes wrong, that's a lot of money that can get uh, drained out of the bottom of the tank or shoveled out of the tank if things oh, the go time totally to wrong. Just the time and down then there's time. even more time to do it. So yep. I think prevention is better than, than trying to fix things after something's gone wrong. It's about getting your methods in place, your method, methodology in place, like your tank mixing order, making sure you've got the right amount of water in the tank beforehand, taking your time with uh, making sure things get into suspension, uh, adding them slowly as well. And time is money, but yeah, I prefer to take an extra 10 minutes per tank load to make sure it's all right in suspension and working well, as opposed to having a, a disaster where you're throwing a very large amount of, uh, in terms of value, product out. And one other thing that I, I've spoken to a lot of people about is is monitor your filters. Don't just check your filters when the, you start seeing blockages and your pressure drops off. Try and check your filters uh, as regularly as you can, ideally after each load, to see what's uh, built up on the filters and you might detect something's going a little bit wrong and you can change up your practices. Don't wait until you start seeing that problem in the paddock to go and check your filters and realise it's caked with all sorts of product. It's uh, de- Definitely prevention is better than the cure. And taking your time it can be more than worth it as opposed to having to deal with a problem later and uh, trying to jump into a tank with a shovel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, exactly, with the right of, uh, protective equipment on, of course. But look, listeners, we know you do a lot of spraying and doing it for a lot of years. So, you know, some of this can sound like sucking eggs, but I don't think there's ever a bad time to review that. Um, you know, grab the resource at crop.bayer.com.au, the tank mixing guide on the tools tab there or get in touch with the Bayer rep if you can't find that and uh, hopefully that'll allay any issues that uh, may come up because you know there's a lot of things often going into the tanks these days and there will be reactions between the products in their own right and just one final bit too Matt is you know the the amount of water per hectare often you know some of the ones we get we get uh, queries on or called up about are very low water rates and yes that um, does have a fit in some cases often you know if you don't have enough water to start with and you're trying to put a, a lot of products into a small amount of water then that uh, could lead to problems as well and I like the analogy of you know if you're off camping mate and you wake up in the morning you yell out who wants an omelette and 40 people call up they all want two eggs in their in their serve and if you've only got a little frying pan are you going to chuck the whole 80 eggs into a little frying pan or are you going to do it in batches and or you know or do something a little bit differently get a bigger frying pan potentially which is the water in this case so mm. you know you've got to think about that it's not as simple as just going oh well um you know i'm, I'm only spraying at 50 liters a hectare which is fine in in singular cases for some products um and make sure you look at all the product labels and see what their recommendations are but the more things you add 
um, to a tank mix. You generally are going to need more water to have enough of those uh, pigeon holes or a big enough frying pan to fit stuff into. Mm, certainly. So, yeah, Matt, that was mixing order, tank mixing order, and great resources available um, on that. So make sure you check those out. Um, but this year, Matt, as always, but I'm hearing perhaps a few more lupins around. What can we do about broadleaf weed control in lupins, just as a reminder? Well, certainly the, uh, there's obviously uh, strategies with uh, simazine pre-emergent and uh, metribuzin post-emergent, um, but the, probably the big one, the most commonly used one, is uh, broadal options, so diphyphenicin, um, using yep. that post-emergent for your, your broadleaf uh, weed control. Yep, uh, broadal options still around, been a, a tried and uh, proven proven one there. So, yeah, that is around and uh, certainly available. So broadal for lupins. And then turning into looking at the cereal crops, obviously, you know, there's early weeds that would be coming up potentially now. Um, you know, we've got velocity and precept in particular. And, I mm. mean, I'll let you talk about velocity and then I might just touch on precept, uh, particularly for oat crops, but velocity in wheat and barley. Yeah, so... Yeah, velocity uh, registered uh, from two leaf in, uh, in uh, wheat and barley. Yep. Um, been around for about ten years now. Very well understood as a premium form of uh, broadleaf weed control uh, in the in the north of WA in particular, with the wild radish populations with a developing Group I and F resistance. Uh, it's become a mainstay for them. It's become crucial for them to control their weed populations. But uh, velocity with that co-formulation of a Group C and bromoxanol, a Group H and parasolvatol. With that synergism between the two of them, multiple modes of action, being able to add in MCPA or a Tigrex, you can get three or four modes of action. It's quite, it can be a very robust brew and a great solution for controlling these weeds. Um, and as I spoke about a couple of episodes ago on the CropCast around HPPDs, it's a, it's a it's a chemistry we need to really protect and being able to apply that in a co-formulation with multiple modes of action is absolutely crucial to protect it because as we've known from plenty of other chemicals over the past, putting them out by themselves in less than ideal conditions is a surefire way to, to bring about resistance and to, to break that product for, for future use. So, um, yeah, Velocity, it's a superb product. We need to keep on looking after it. But the fact that it's in the co-formulation is a real big tick from my point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, looking after it, as you said, and the fact we can come in early, deal with small weeds, you know, small mm-hmm. to mid-sized weeds, really clean things up because they are the competitive weeds. And, you know, use your best tools, as I often say, use your best tools um, for the job um, within that segment. And um, things should last for a long time, become, you know, very, very good crops as we go forward. And look, one I love to talk about is precept for oats. So you can come into oat crops from the the three leaf stage with precept, um, very broad label uh, for for the weed control on that as well, and you can get information off our website or off the label, of course. But yeah, nice safe option from that three leaf stage uh, in oats, but also wheat and barley crops as well in the southern areas if, uh, if that's of interest, and you can tank mix that one as well. Um, mm. So again, building on that beautiful Group H HPPD chemistry um, this time with LVE MCPA in that one in precept, but uh, don't forget about it for your oat crops because there aren't mm. a lot of options often in the oat crops and. Uh, those that uh, have used it really, really do enjoy that precept in oats. So good one to keep an eye out for. Um, mm. All right. Now, Matt, you, um, you've been, you taunted me before we came on air for this podcast and you, you had a fact, a thing that um, 
you said something to do with where, you know, obviously we're hearing COVID-19 referred to as a war, you know, we're fighting a war, but you <laughs> want to talk about a different type of one. And I, I'm so intrigued. I don't know what this is. So I'll let okay. you uh, have the mic for a little bit and uh, talk about the other type of war that you wanted to mention here. <laughs> Thanks, Whitey. So in the previous CropCast, in my little facts, I've had some good uh, feedback on uh, when we were in South Australia last year, we spoke about farming, Farmers Union Ice Coffee. And oh, yeah. We were in Queensland a few months ago and we spoke about their coat of arms with introduced species on it. Uh, so I thought I'd go a little bit closer to home now and go for a Western Australian fact, which is it's quite interesting. And what I want to talk about is something that's actually been a little bit notorious on uh, – uh, on the internet lately, it's been getting a bit of coverage globally, is is the Great Emu War. Emu uh, have, you, have you heard about the Great Emu Never War? Never heard of that. Emu War. Okay. Beer? So Great Emu War. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm sure there's been a few wars with the old uh, emu export uh, cans. Not that then. Oh, okay. Uh, no, but it's, it's the Great Emu War. So that this, this war uh, occurred in 1932. Um, in near Muck and Budden, between Muck and Budden and Warralakin in Western Australia. So for those of you not around NWA, it's sort of eastern wheat belt, on, uh, not quite on the fringe, but not too far off. So this was a military operation, this, the Great, Great Emu War. Cause to give you a bit of background, so 1932, World War One's been and gone. A lot of the ex-military have been have moved on to the land to uh, for work, um, growing uh, sheep. Sheep and uh, wheat were the two big ones, and obviously we had the Great Depression in 1929. Wheat prices are going down. Um, but leading up to all this, the government had promised these soldiers when they were going to go on the land that there'd be subsidies to help them uh, to subsidise their, their, their sales from selling their wheat after they've grown it. Um, and that didn't happen. So they're getting a little bit upset, a little bit agitated. Um, and you come to about 1932, and, and the prices are bottoming out. They're really upset. This is no good. And then what's happened is that with all this land that's been cleared and there's water sources that have been built up, something else is really like the look of all this. It's the, the emu population of Western oh, Australia. Yeah, so right. so the, the, the emus, uh, they, they, they'll, they'll be in the, in the desert. They'll be, um, they'll be breeding. Uh, and then after that, they'll, they'll migrate. So, so as things dry off, they'll migrate uh, towards the coast a bit. And so they'll go from the desert towards the coast and go through all that agricultural land. Um, so they reckon about yeah, about 20,000 emus decided in 1932 that they wanted to come across and check out what was uh, being grown uh, with all those wheat crops there. Mm. And uh, the farmers are obviously a little bit upset about this. <laughs> so they've gone and spoke, they've gone to, they've got these ex-soldiers, these farmers, have gone to Canberra and spoken to the Minister of Defence and said, all right, we, we, we know from when we were in the war that Kelly machine guns, really effective at taking down the, the enemy, and we're, we're seeing these emus as the enemy right now. So you reckon you can give us some machine guns and we can take out these, these emus that are coming in. And the minister, he, he's ex-military himself, so he could see the, the value in, in, in machine guns against uh, emus, but he didn't want to give the farmers them, so he got the military involved. So he's said, all right, cool, I'm going to send in the Royal Australian Artillery with a whole bunch of Kelly machine guns and a few thousand rounds of ammunition and uh, see if we can sort out these emus. We'll have the benefit of a little bit of target practice for the military. And he probably also thought oh, we, there was all that thing about secession going on with West Australia at the time too. So he thought if we send in the military, that'll appease the farmers and that'll, that'll put the end of that. So I send all these, wow. I send the, the military in after Mackenbud and Warralakin to take down these 20,000 emus 
So about, you get to about October, November by the time of 1932 when this occurred. Wow. And they went out there. And, of course, you know what emus are like. They don't just stand in a, in a row and charge like they do in the military. They scatter. Yep. They use what you'd consider guerrilla tactics. Some of the uh, quotes taken from the commanders was saying that these emus acted in packs. They're generally a leader who would be sort of standing in the crop and you'd be watching whilst the others are having their, their bit of a feed. And uh, when he saw someone coming, he'd, he'd – Tell his mates to, to to disappear, to scatter, and then he'd he'd leave at the very end there. So at the end of that, so twenty thousand wow. emus. After the first operation, uh, the, the casualties were fifty emus and zero men. But the men had run out of ammunition, and so they retreated. Huh. And so technically, it was considered an emu victory. So the oh, emus my goodness. won wow. the Great Emu War of 1932. Um, they, they, they tried to do it again, but the, the government had had enough by that point and said, All right, we'll bring in the bounty system, uh, we'll bring in some vermin yep. fences, and that's how they were successfully able to manage it from there on end. But the Great Emu War... Uh, a victory to the emus. The emu <laughs> war of 1932, the things they mm. did far out history. Yes. No, that's really interesting, Matt. Goodness me. Mm. And and uh, a victory to the emus. There you go. Incredible. <laughs> no, that's a really good one. I like that. I, um, I've been out uh, certainly Mucker and Warralakan plenty of times. I used to live out there and, yeah, love that. I have fond memories of of uh, being along the edge there near the fence and seeing those emus on the right and the wrong side, to be honest. And um, I can only imagine what it must have been like when they were trying to establish those those uh, food crops way back in those years. And, yeah, the desperate stakes uh, call for desperate measures. So thanks for sharing that one. That's a very interesting. I never would have thought. But uh, that's pretty cool. And I'm sure anyone that's from out that way um, has probably heard that. And uh, if you haven't you got any more to add to it, please uh, get in touch with Matt or I, and we'll give out the Twitter handles uh, a little bit later. Now, Matt, I've, um, I like to review an app or just uh, remind us of an app. And obviously, you know, as seeding is underway, there's plenty of people putting their drones up and taking the pictures over the head of the sowing operation. I'm sure there'll be a lot more of the drones going up uh, you know, after seeding as well as people start to go back and review what they've seen. But one little app I know I really enjoy and, and like is the one from CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, CASA, and it's called Open Sky. So you may already have this one, some of you listeners, but if you don't and you own a drone, it is really worth getting. It's called Open Sky. And uh, what that does, it's like a little checklist, I suppose, in terms of wherever you are, you can just double check if there's any um, flight restrictions, you know, if you're too close to an airport or some other controlled airspace, and also has a nice little weather feature and things like that built in, um, which is really good. So I'd really urge you, um, have a look at Open Sky. Uh, Matt, I think you probably uh, use that one. It used to be called Can I Fly There, but they changed it. Mm. And um, yeah, I find it useful. So if you're about to unpack your drone even, make sure you uh, update and get your Open Sky app before you fly up in the sky. Certainly. It's a good one. Righto. So, Matt, I'm going to jump over the borders and uh, have a chat with some colleagues over in the east, just what's uh, going on over there in a quick way. But you and I can be got in touch with through Twitter. Your Twitter handle, Matt, is? At Matt Willis Ag. At Matt Willis Ag, a really easy one. And mine is at Photo by CW. At Photo by CW. Uh, you wonder why that is sometimes, but uh, I love photography and my initials are CW. So there you go, at Photo by CW. <laughs> Not as hard as Tim Murphy's like the last one we uh, tried to read out, oh, but, I, but I will put it in the uh, in the podcast notes if you want to get in touch. That'll come straight to us and we do enjoy the 
um, the you know the tweets and retweets uh, and getting in touch. So Matt, thanks very much. It'll be really great to catch up with you again soon on another Bayer Cropcast episode. On the next one, I'm actually going to do a, a herbicide resistance special in that one and have a couple of guests talking about the herbicide resistance uh, testing program from 2019 and 2020. So that'll be interesting to get involved with mm. that one. So thanks Looking very much, mate. To it. Yeah. Thanks, Whitey. Speak to you later, mate. See you, later. See you later, Matt. So we just caught up with Matt Willis there in Western Australia. We had a good talk about a whole range of things this uh, sort of early time in the season, but now I'm going to zoom across over to Queensland and northern New South Wales and catch up with my colleague over there, Richard Jackman. How are you today, mate? Hey, Roddy. How are you? Yeah, going good, mate. We could do with a drop of rain, though, I can tell you, down in the southern part of Western Australia at least. I mean, everywhere needs some, but uh, what's the conditions like over in Queensland, northern New South Wales there at the moment? Right, it's a bit different to when we last talked um, mm. last year. Um, it's pretty good in northern New South Wales. Um, I've been sort of tripping around through from the central west of New South Wales right up to um, under the Darling Downs. Darling Downs is in desperate need of a good drop of rain, and fingers crossed there's a change coming through that'll get our um, winter crop going. But from the um, Queensland border south, it's um, there's a lot of activity. Crops are out of the ground. It's, um, yeah... A really nice change to see. No, it sounds really nice, and uh, we keep hearing about that and seeing that, and with envy. But of course, uh, well deserved after a you know pretty tumultuous uh, time there with the droughts and whatnot. So it'll be great to see a really good winter crop coming through. And on that vein, you've been busy, very busy, actually getting a whole lot of trials in the ground. So just want to tell us a little bit about where they are and what you're up to there. Yeah, Whitey, um, yeah, been um, taking advantage of the moisture and trying to get everything in early. Um, I've got been um, working with our early new um, pipeline chemistry um, for pre-emergence and post-emergence in um, cereals. So I've got some um, trials already down at Narramine, um, Gunnada, Narrabri and um, Moree areas. Mm-hmm. So and. Plan is to have another couple go into the Darling Downs, um, targeting some oats and um, Phalaris once we um, get some rain. But yeah, just just waiting for some rain up here really to get those going. But the others are all in. Uh, most have had first first sprays on. There's a couple left to go with planting. Um, but yeah, once they're uh, yeah they're they're done, that'll be it. And oh yeah, I've had a couple that have had their or oh, one, sorry, has had its um, first application and I've got one that's due for another application, so we're a little bit different to what's happened in the past, I'm probably, yeah probably almost a month ahead of what I've, where I normally am with my trials um, yeah, it's been good. Terrific mate and um, what are those trials looking at like you said it was um, some pipeline work but we're looking at, it's pre and post, but what weed spectrum, you know you're expecting to pick up there as well um, we've got, it, it varies by site, so it's geographically um, mm-hmm. based, and um, but this weed spectrum sort of vary between black oats, phalaris, and ryegrass. Um, ryegrass is more in the south, and um, black oats and phalaris are in those sites of Moree and um, Narrabri. Um, and then I've got a great site that just went down over in uh, the Narrow Mine area or central west over near Dubbo that's. Uh, what is it? It's flares, black oats, radish, flea bone, sour thistle, Mexican poppy. Um, yeah, there's some volunteer lupins from a fail crop last year. It's it if it comes off and does what it should do, it's um it, it'll be a cracker of a side. But yeah, everything's looking pretty good at the moment. Just um, a few, a little bit early um, flares and early ryegrass and a few 
odd black oak coming up in the trial. So, yeah, starting to see a picture. And, yeah, we'll be getting, I reckon in another sort of three or four weeks, they'll be, um, we'll be getting ready to start showing people through, hopefully. Oh, that'll be really good. And, of course, we'll also be looking at, you know, ways of taking people through those trials, um, but we'll also be looking at ways to, you know, bring them virtually some filming and things like that as well in, in the uh, during during the year, Rich. So it'll be really exciting. But, um, you know, during... You know, we're sort of starting to come out of the COVID-19 isolation a little bit now, but um, as I think I said last time, really important to have plenty of cans of chickpeas in the pantry. So what's going on, mate? Are we going to have plenty of chickpeas around uh, over in the east this year? Are they getting planted or what's going on with chickpeas? Yeah, it's an um, interesting um, situation this year. We've... Um Big thing has been ground cover, so um, there's been a little bit of a swing away from our pulses back to cereals, and there's probably two parts of that, partly ground cover, um, trying to get some ground cover from our cereals, but also there, there is a bit of fear that we're due for a wet winter and um, trying to control disease in pulses um, may be a little bit more challenging if it comes off and how we're all hoping it will, but early indications are suggesting that um, we're going to end up with 25 to 30% of our crop rotationally planted back to um, chickpeas. Okay. There's been a few few start to go in up on the um, on the downs, which is probably about two weeks early, one to two weeks earlier than usual. Um, a lot of people are just pulling up at the moment just to see what this rain change will do, but they've been moisture seeking those into you know, five inches down trying to uh, hit the moisture where it's, uh, you know, we've got good deep moisture. Down in northern New South Wales, there's a couple that have started that I'm aware of, but I think in, you know, after this change we'll see a lot of people start to get into their chickpeas in the end of, towards the end of May. So, yeah, all, all going right, mate. We should end up with 25 to 30% of the cropping area. We're going to um, – areas like the central Queensland, they're, um, they're in sort of similar situation to the Darling Downs there. Haven't been getting the rain that the, our southern friends have been getting, and uh, they haven't got a huge area in it yet. So they're sort of waiting desperately to get a bit of rain. A few guys have moisture seeking those, but they've had good um, early autumn rain. But yeah, we it's funny the downs, Whitey. We had uh, a lot of there's all those reports of the big rainfalls. Um, you know, half their annual rainfall in fall in January, and February, and since you know early Feb, we haven't had much rain on the downs at all. Whereas mm-hmm. You know, northern New South Wales is a little bit slow to get the rain, but once it started, it hasn't really stopped. And every time there's a change comes across, it drops anywhere between five to, you know, 30, 40 mils, depending on what cloud you're under. So yep. it's looking, yeah, it's looking really good down there. Oh, very good, Rich. And um, we'll keep listeners, we'll keep you posted as the year goes by on the chickpeas and just in terms of, you know, say like Aviator X-Pro is a great example there for managing disease later on. We can give some details, I'm sure, Rich, about how to get the best out of Aviator X-Pro as we go through the year. That's right, yeah. And I'd encourage anyone that um, is listening to the podcast to give us a call, especially if they're getting some of these new diseases. And, um, you know, we're always looking to um, expand our data package with aviators. So, yeah, if you get, get a, um, have some chickpeas and we start to see those diseases come come around, um, yeah, please give us a call and, you know, we might be able to look at some opportunities with Aviator into those um, crops. Oh, that'll be good, Rich. And um, just on that, get in touch with you through Twitter, I reckon, is a great way. So what's your Twitter handle, Rich? Yeah, Whitey, I'm probably one of the slackest out of our MD group on the Twitter, but um, I'm at RJJackman1. 
at RJ Jackman one You can get in yes. touch with Richard on that. And when you see that, um, your message comes through, I'm sure you know you get back in touch with people pretty promptly. So that's the way to get in touch, RJ Jackman one That's right, Whitey. And I, I do keep I do keep tabs on it. I'll probably try to this year, like, like what we were talking about earlier with COVID, I'll try to keep people updated with what we're seeing in the trials and um, yeah, get a little bit more active, I think. So good way of getting people Good over we'll, what we're actually doing. We'll hold you to that, Rich. So next time on Bayer Cropcast, we'll see how you've been going with that. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds good, mate. No worries. All right, well, thanks very much. It's been good to have a quick chat with you, and uh, we'll catch up with you on a future Bayer Cropcast. But better get back out and do a bit more on the trial work and get out and about in the field again. Cheers, Whitey. Good to talk. You too. See you, mate. Thanks for joining us on Bayer Cropcast. To get more information about anything you heard on today's episode, phone 1800 804 479 to get in touch with us or visit the web at crop.bayer.com.au. Thanks for listening.